Hello, friends, old and new. Welcome to Le Vital Course Salon. I'm your host and salonier, Cara Martin-Snyder. For those of you who are new, each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman who is leaving her unique stain on the world without letting BS or burnout stop her. And today's guest, Nicole Stott, has probably left a watercolor stain somewhere on the International Space Station. Nicole Stott has soared to the heights of outer space and dove to the depths of of the bottom of our ocean. In awe of what she's experienced from these very unique vantage points, she has dedicated her life to sharing the beauty of Earth from space with others. She believes that sharing these orbital and inner space perspectives has the power to increase everyone's appreciation of and obligation to care for our home planet and for each other. As a veteran NASA astronaut, her experience includes two space flights and 104 days spent living and working on both the space shuttle and the International Space Station. She's performed one spacewalk. She was the first person to fly the robotic arm to capture the free-flying HTV cargo vehicle. And she was the last crew member to fly to and from their International Space Station mission on a space shuttle. She was also a crew member on the final flight of the space shuttle Discovery, STS-133. Yet a personal highlight of Nicole's time in space was painting the first watercolor painting in space. After 27 years with NASA, Nicole is now retired and a full-time artist. She's combining her spaceflight experience and artwork to inspire creative thinking about solutions to some of our biggest planetary challenges, to raise awareness of the surprising interplay between science and art, and to promote the amazing work being done every day in space to improve life right here on our planet Earth. Through the Space for Art Foundation, she's connecting creative space enthusiasts and artists to develop and facilitate art therapy programs, exhibits, and research. If you want to get a sense of some of the creative projects that Nicole's been a part of since she's been quote-unquote retired, check out the Spacesuit Art Project and National Geographic's One Strange Rock documentary series. A little side note about One Strange Rock, it's produced by Darren Aronofsky, it's visually stunning, and it's wicked smart. As you can probably guess, we're going to talk about art, we're going to talk about space, and we're going to talk about the interconnectivity that we all experience as Earthlings, and what that means for Nicole and all of us too. Before we jump over to my conversation with Nicole, I want this show and the fact that it even got made to stand as a reminder for what's possible. I'm sure a lot of you out there have projects that you're working on or things you're trying to accomplish at work or in your personal life that feel big and huge and you have no idea how they're going to come together. And that's how I felt about starting this podcast back in 2016. And there are a lot of things that go into how I choose guests and the curation process and it's a giant algorithm that my husband and producer Craig has often tried to figure out but still can't really completely pull out of me. 
But I know when I was dreaming up this podcast and what I wanted to contribute to other women, I was thinking about guests that would be a good fit for the show. And I've always known that I want there to be an element of science and art and different perspectives from both sides of that spectrum. Astronaut was on that list. Flash forward to about a year and a half and 40 some odd episodes later, and I'm meeting up with Craig for dinner at South by Southwest, and he hands me a business card and says, so I met two astronauts today. Truthfully, I thought he was just jerking my chain. While I was bumping between mentor sessions and roundtables at South by Southwest, Craig found himself sitting next to astronaut Leland Melvin during Nicole's Artful Eyes talk. Thanks to Craig's quick thinking and Leland Melvin's willingness to introduce Craig to Nicole, this podcast came to be. And again, let this be a reminder. If you are someone listening that has a quasi-audacious goal and doesn't exactly know how to get there, I want to give you a little bit of advice today. One, share what you want to make or do with a caring friend and or family member, maybe even a few of them. Remember, they can be additional eyes and ears to help make your dream a reality. Two, take the next best action that you know how to do. Instead of getting totally overwhelmed by all the things that have to happen to realize your ultimate goal, just start taking action in that direction. For me with this podcast, it was to practice the craft of podcasting, to get comfortable having conversations with women doing really impactful and cool things in the world. And learning how to ask questions better and record better and figure out how to make it a comfortable experience as possible for my guests. And lastly, have fun in the process. The journey is often just as cool as the destination. And now let's blast off with Nicole. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to La Vital Core Salon. Hi, Kara. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to be here. You are welcome. I think, I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. I think so. If some of the pre-show giggles are an yeah. indication, we're probably going to have fun with this conversation. <laughs> yes, that's what it should be. Yay! So, Nicole, you're an artist and the first Earthling to paint a watercolor painting in space. Yet many folks probably default to knowing you as a veteran NASA astronaut and even an aquanaut. I don't know where to begin with the question, so maybe I'll just start with why watercolor? Well, you know, I wish there was a short answer. (laughs) I'll try to make it one. But um, I think in the end, the, the just taking paints or anything to space is just about being a human being in space. And uh, you know, we, we're not just working up there anymore. We live there. And so I'll, I'll tell you, I am so thankful to uh, a friend, a woman that I was working with at the time in the astronaut office who reminded me that I'd be living there and that I'd have some spare time while I was there. And that, oh, by the way, I have this little kind of duffel bag sized uh, 
container that I can put some personal items in and maybe I might want to put something in there that I can do in my, my free time. And while there didn't end up being a whole lot of free time, I am so thankful to her because that's what encouraged me, really inspired me to bring up just this little watercolor kit and, you know, try to do something that I enjoy doing down here in space. That's wild. Let's talk about your time in space. For the listeners who don't know you or your story yet, you've done two space flights and you've spent, I think, collectively 104 days in space, right? Yes. And so my first flight was what we call a long duration expedition. And that was uh, so a little over three months on the International Space Station. And I had the opportunity to fly up on a space shuttle. So I flew up on the space shuttle Discovery and then spent a little over three months on the station and then came home on the space shuttle Atlantis. And then about a year and a half later, I flew again to the space station, but only for two weeks. Um, and I can tell you that's not long enough. <laughs> but um, very thankful for that time. But I would, I, they had to pull my clawing hands off the hatch to get me back in the shuttle to bring me home. But uh, that was the final flight of the Space Shuttle Discovery. Wow. So 104 collective days in space. How much time did you actually have? Like when you consider work as kind of one pocket, sleep as probably another, and then like this little bit of personal time, like what was that mix like so we can understand? Well, our, our days are pretty scheduled. You know, I, I mean, at one point, the schedules that we have were, you know, they're literally broken down into like into five minute segments of, you know, here's what you're going to be doing science wise and maintenance wise. And here's where you have dinner and go to bed and, you know, those kinds of things. They do allow or, you know, on the schedule, there's eight hours set aside for sleep. Thank you. And there's uh, what we call post sleep and pre sleep times, which are you know, basically what you would do here on earth, you know, I get up in the morning, I have breakfast, I get ready for my work day, you know, those kinds of things. And then the same thing after the work day, you know, there were these, you know, these couple hours of that chill, like wind down, have dinner, call your family, look out the window and think about the next day, I guess, and get ready for bed. Uh, And then in between, it's, pretty much an eight, at least eight hours, but more like 10 hours of uh, scheduled work day. And in that also is two hours of, uh, of exercise. So, you know, split up either an hour at the beginning, an hour at the end, or two hours together, you're, you're working out um, as, as a countermeasure to what space is doing to your body. Um, you know, that no gravity thing is wonderful when it comes to floating and flying around, you know, on your own, using all of the volume of the the, the space station and, and really living kind of in a very liberated way like that. But uh, your brain and your body also figure out that you don't need bones or muscles anymore to survive up there. So they don't waste any energy maintaining them. So we have to be very deliberate about uh, an exercise routine. And I was actually very thankful for that, too, because I came back in better shape than I, than I went to Space Station. So that was a good Whoa! Time. Yeah. But, uh, and it's very effective. The exercise is, is very effective um, in countering that, that bone and muscle loss. But the rest of the day, and what's so cool about it is 
every day is a little bit different. It's going to be a mix of science activities. It's going to be a mix of maintenance activities and outreach things like this, having conversations with uh, students and people on the ground who are interested in what we're doing up there. And But every day is a little bit different. You know, every day there's a different mix of experiments that you're working on and maintenance that you're doing. And one day you might be going out the hatch and doing a spacewalk and the next day you're flying that big white crane robotic arm around and uh, or doing somebody's really important science for them from the ground. That's wild. And what was the role you were charged with for your time there? Yeah, you know, it's funny. My, my classification was as a flight engineer. And so basically everybody's a flight engineer and then there's one person on the crew is the commander too. But, uh, and that could be, what's cool about that too is, you know, it's the International Space Station. So we have uh, crew members from five different space agencies, you know, the Russians, Japanese, Canadians, Europeans, and us, and all working as one crew up there, which is, we could talk all day about that, um, but, <laughs> and, and, and in a very positive way, you know, and I say that because I really believe that the space station and the way it runs and how that crew of six and the thousands of people on the ground peacefully, successfully have been doing this work is absolutely the best example for how we should be operating down here on Spaceship Earth, too. But yes. uh, again, we could talk about that all day. But uh, I like your question because it's um, while I was classified as a flight engineer, every single one of the crew members up there now, it really is jack of all trades. Because we don't have, you know, we don't have enough space flights, we don't have enough space on the station, we don't, to be flying the doctor and the engineer and the plumber and the chef <laughs> and the, you know, the, the PR person, we don't have it. So all of us have to be all of that. And it's really awesome. Because I love working with tools, so I like doing the maintenance on the space station. I, I like doing things like this with you on your podcast. I want to let people know about all the wonderful things that are happening up there that are about improving life here on Earth. So I want to do the outreach stuff. I want to be the one doing the spacewalk. I want to do the science for the scientists that are have their work up there. You know, so it's it's I want to be the medical guy too. You know, I mean, it's it's nice to have an opportunity where you can uh, do all of these different kinds of things and feel successful at it too. You know, feel like you're making a difference by doing all of them. Now, that doesn't mean I, I'm not hopeful for the day when more and more people are flying to space, when we have more opportunity for that, and where we are able to fly the doctors and the plumbers and the electricians and the, the artists and the PR people. I think, I think that is going to be a really wonderful time when we, we have that, that capability. And if you ever need a podcaster for women, just let I, me know. Yeah, I will let you know. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm, I'm on that list too now. I'm like, I live vicariously through my friends who are up there because, you know, ask me when I'm 95, do I want to fly in space? The answer is absolutely yes. But I feel very blessed to have done it. You know, I was in line to do it again, but I I also felt like there were, there were reasons why I had that experience that I'm now having the opportunity to, you know, take advantage of too. So what were some of those reasons? Well, you know, um, the spaceflight experience is, is for sure. It's, it's a, you know, still a pretty unique and uh, very special uh, experience. I feel like um, the way I experienced it has impacted me very positively for, for the rest of my life. 
uh, you know, you could talk epiphany moment kind of thing, really. And uh, I think that this may sound very simple, but I've tried to simplify what were the lessons I learned (laughs) from flying in space. One of like 10 million, right? (laughs) And there's both of them. But in the simplest way, it comes down really to three things for me. And I think about these things every day now. I didn't necessarily think about them before I flew. And one is, you know, we live on a planet. We're all earthlings. And the only border that matters is that thin blue line of atmosphere that blankets us all. And those three things really to me are, they're the very just basic definition of who and where we are. And it speaks completely to the interconnectivity of everything that goes on here on Earth. And how, you know, we are obligated to, you know, appreciate each other as earthlings and to take care of the planet so that we survive here. Um, And I think that's my mission now, you know, whether it's through my art or different groups that I'm involved with. When I go out and I speak, hopefully when we are done with this podcast today, you'll leave here feeling, you know, accepting that you're an earthling. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I don't, I don't mean that to sound goofy. I mean, I really mean it to, to be in a way. We have built this space station that essentially mimics what Earth does for us naturally. You know, it's the most complex thing we've ever done as human beings. And it's hanging there in space, you know, with the six crew members living on it peacefully, successfully from all of these different countries around the world. And I really believe we as Earthlings need to accept that we are crew on Spaceship Earth. Yes. You know, and we, I think most of us tend to live our lives as passengers. And, you know, I, that the one thing that that, if, if nothing else, that that slight experience did for me was made me recognize that, wow, I'm, already, I'm in space all the time <laughs> <laughs> on a planet. And I need to treat, treat the way I live here like I'm a crew member on this planet. You know, to recognize the the limitations of the resources, to recognize my crewmates and their, you know, their needs as well. And, um, you know, try to make my decisions based on that. Encourage others to take action based on that same kind of thing, or to at least acknowledge it. Amen, Nicole. As someone who deeply (laughs) believes in how interconnected we are, not only with each other, but like the planet and the universe it's it's hard to separate mm-hmm. that. And I don't know that we have the science, and you probably know more of it than I do at this point. But it doesn't seem like we have the science to prove that to people. So there is that element of trust. And I am firmly accepting my earthling status. And I know something that's really important to Thank me. You. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I think something that's really important to me that you might relate to is the practice of just simply when we meet different people, when we hear different opinions. I've been really trying to push myself, especially in these last couple of years where politics and all of that just seems to be such a divisive cesspool of behavior right now. You know, really asking the question, what do we have in common? Like in every situation where I feel triggered or challenged or someone's coming at me really abrasively, just thinking, okay, what do we have in common? And sometimes it's literally like we both breathe oxygen. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's the best I can come up with immediately. But it's like, all right, we both need air to breathe. We're both standing up right now. (laughs) We both have hair. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's it's almost like the Maslow hierarchy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, what what are our basic needs? We all have that in common, you know, and and I think um those three things I mentioned, the earthling planet and you know, thin blue line of the atmosphere thing, that absolutely is the the very base of what we all have in common. And accepting that interconnectivity is huge. I mean, it's really huge. I think it it drives us to be uh, long-term thinkers, um, you know, not just short-term thinkers. It drives us to accept that we have to cooperate with each other to survive. And that's not always easy, right? Like, I imagine yeah, when you're in a... Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, even, you know, I, I use the, the space station and the partnership there, the relationships as an example. It's not easy for them either, you know? <laughs> it's like... Whether that's the six people on the station who are just this tiny little piece of the whole program. I mean, you've got thousands of people across the planet that are making that happen, that have established the operating manual for how that will happen. And that's the operating manual for the technical side, you know, when the systems don't work right, the hardware, but also for when the relationships are having, you know, when one country wants something that the other country doesn't think is a priority, but they've figured out They've established the rules of engagement and they live to them and they work to them. And that's why I, you know, I always, I really do think of it as a matter of scale. It's like, how do we take what we've done in this place that's hanging in space and do that for this other place that's hanging in space, you know, our planet and, and figure out how to manage that. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from, you know, what we've done you know, in space that really is about how have these thousands of people from all of these different countries come together and cooperated, cooperated in a way for something that really is just greater good. So important. Yep. And ultimately that's what it's going to be about here on planet earth is how do we come together in a way that recognizes that, Hey, this planet will survive us. And, and maybe it maybe it's a it's about a conversation of selfish motivation. You know, we have to treat each other well. We have to treat the planet well in these ways because if we don't, we don't survive. The planet will survive us. It's done it before. We are a blip on the line of the existence of this <laughs> of this planet. And so our you know our selfishness can really be turned around to our advantage to say, hey. I need to maintain that oxygen that we all breathe. If we're all going to, if we're all, or even I am going to be able to continue to breathe it. I need to maintain that, you know, clean water. So the cycle continues for me to allow, you know, to breathe and survive here because the earth can survive without water on it. It's done it before. What you're saying, (laughs) but I I won't survive here without that. That's interesting because what you're saying is I can feel my head doing a little bit of a paradigm shift because I think we as humans think we can solve anything. Like we are above the pecking order of everything, even planet earth. And so as everyone's fighting about is climate change real? Is it not real? And, and all of this stuff is going on. It seems like now that I think about it in relation to what you just said, there is this element of ego wound in it that like hey we're we're man and woman we've we've got this we'll we've we're the boss of things now we're at the top of the pecking order but the reality (laughs) is actually quite different 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that um, that there's some truth, though, in, in what you're saying about us being able to solve the problems. I think we absolutely can solve the problems if we choose to do it. But there is that, that balance of the ego that, um, you know, or this, um, what would you call it, like this uh, distribution of the resources, you know, how those dis- decisions are made is, you know, how does the economy vo- versus the reality drive what we do? And, uh, you know, this idea that um, everybody could live in a healthy, wealthy way on this planet if we just chose to decide differently. It, it is within the realm of possibility. I, and I, I honestly believe it. And I think we can get there. I think it's why it's important to look at things like um, these partnerships and these relationships that have happened with the, what we're doing in space and how we, you know, we can apply those lessons you know, right down here on Earth. Because, in fact, everything we do up there, you know, whether it's the science or how the solar arrays generate electricity or the way we deal with each other, is ultimately about improving life here on Earth. It, it's totally doable. I so hope you're right. I have faith I, that you are. <laughs> that's, I, that is, that is uh, what I live for now. I mean, I live for that, that hope that... Um, you know, that these things will happen. And, you know, you talk about kind of this turmoil and, the, you know, this, this kind of sense of negativity, really, that's around us. Uh, if, if there's been one upside to it, I think it's that, you know, as, as humans, we're starting to become more aware again. We're, um, we're looking at things like, wow, maybe I should be taking action to change this versus counting on somebody else to do it for me and that other somebody could be you know the government or uh you know some organization or the people at my job (laughs) you know I think there really I think there really is a a grassroots kind of thing going on again this wave of people becoming aware and recognizing that they can that we can take the responsibility for some of these things and find the solutions ourselves implement those solutions ourselves even at the, the tiniest one person doing one thing level that just grows bigger and bigger. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing. I think that that awareness, that recognition of how we as individuals can come together and really make positive, impactful change is where the big things happen. You know, it's kind of like when you step out of your comfort zone. That's where the, the really wonderful things, the wonder and awe happens when we're not comfortable sometimes. <laughs> And, yes. and, and really, really great things can happen then. And if anything, I, I, I see that as the, as the shining light <laughs> in all of this. You know, you mentioned whether, you know, whether you believe in climate change or not. Okay, G- great. Believe in it or not. But the reality is if we don't have clean water, we don't survive. If we don't have clean air to breathe, we don't survive. If we don't have whatever resource it is collectively across all of us on this planet, we don't survive. And we can take actions individually and collectively to make, you know, make those things happen without relying on our government to do it for us. <laughs> yes, I think you're so right. I think at the end of 2016 and around the inauguration, I think there was this energy. And to me, I feel like 
I meditate a lot. I, I really mm-hmm. try to think about how I'm connected to people, to things, to my environment, and recognize that there are ripples. Every decision, every thought I make, there is going to be a ripple somewhere. And I think coming from that headspace, everything felt like collective noise. Like I felt like sometimes I would go outside and it just sounded like I was hearing screaming. <laughs> I think that was yeah. like the earth, the universe, the United States, like just everyone collectively up in arms, which sounds super woo-woo to admit to a scientist like you. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I think you're right that we sometimes we need to be instigated to take action And we have gotten comfortable as a society. Like, so many of our needs are taken care of, right? Like, there's food. A lot of times there's food waste because we have just so much of it that we're throwing it away. Yeah, how do we distribute that in a way that, I mean, how do we revolutionize, really, thinking about the way we live our lives and the simple changes we can make to improve it for everyone? And, And I love what you said about the meditation, too. I... Um, and this connection, because uh, I really believe that, you know, it's like, I don't know if it goes back to that, if you love them, set them free kind of thing. <laughs> but um, I really felt like when I was in space, you know, looking out the window and seeing Earth from space, I was separated in a way I, I likely will never be again. You know, it was the farthest I, you know, have been, will ever be from the planet. But I felt more connected in that time to all of Earth and all of us that share Earth than I do or did when I was right down in the middle of it. And that looking out the window to me, when I think about it now, it's the closest thing I can come to to what it feels like to meditate. (laughs) (laughs) That I mean, it is a transcendent thing. It's, you know, this, you know, shutting off, but at the same time becoming more aware and connected than, you know, when you're right in the middle of it. And I think that's important for everybody to have the opportunity to do. I don't think you have to go to space and look out a window at Earth <laughs> to feel that way. <laughs> really. Thank I, goodness. I don't, I don't think you do. It's, it's an awesome vantage point for sure. I, I will tell you, I highly recommend it. But I don't think that we have to travel you know, to space that way to do it. I think we need to recognize we're already in space. Those three basic ideas of earthling earth and, you know, the border and, um, and, and that sense of interconnectivity. I, uh, like I said, I don't remember thinking that before I flew. It is a part of my life every day now. And I want it to be something that I share in a way that other people accept it and want to take action based on it too. And I think it'll end up being good for all of us if we do that. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And related to this interconnectivity idea, it makes me think of something you said a few minutes ago about negotiating and being on the space station and having there be these rules of engagement. Because I think what I see in my work as a coach sometimes, and my job is to help burnt out type A women navigate and negotiate change in their foundational health structure, right? Like, so looking at things like diet and rest and exercise and stress management and social relationships. 
And what I've found in doing this work for the better part of a decade is one of the things that comes up all the time is when we realize how interconnected those aspects of our life are with our work, with our personal life, with our social structures, and how tangled that can get. I think one of the things that I end up talking about in my work a lot is negotiation. And really like the nuts and bolts of what that looks like. And I think, you know, that sort of organically came about because that was something I had to learn in my 20s in my first job and did a lot of and then really have continued to use and kind of geek out about ever since. So my question for you is, you are rolling around at like, what, 17,000 miles per hour on (laughs) a hunk of metal that's like the size of a football field with a handful of other people, I imagine that's like negotiating on steroids some days. Or is that assumption wrong? (laughs) No, I think it really is. But, you know, as a crew, um, what's nice about that is that, you know, we've trained for quite a while together. So, um, you know, we know each other. And... uh, And we're kind of... We have the advantage of being in this this very special place, you know, the one circling the earth at 17,500 miles an hour, you know, or five miles a second or around the earth every 90 minutes. We have that kind of separated space. And um, there's certainly negotiation that goes on between, you know, the crew members ourselves, um, between the crew as a collective and our ground control teams. But the people I have the most respect for in that whole negotiation kind of world are the ones on the ground. And, and these really amazing folks that have, they've come together um, and figured out how they need to balance their, you know, individual needs to really build the best and safest spaceship you know, to, um, to figure out how, uh, you know, how we implement everyone's science when everyone thinks their science is the most important thing, (laughs) how we share those results. And I never understood how complicated that is in the scientific community. You know, you know, this, this, this intellectual property thing that, you know, makes you realize that, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on out there that if they just shared that information, how much better we'd be off. And within the space program, they have figured out how to get these scientists to share what they're learning. And, you know, and then to negotiate with us, (laughs) you know, on board the station when they're distributing the tasks that are going to be done, or they're trying to, you know, say to us, hey, we're going to need you to work two extra hours you know, on top of your 10 hours today so that we can get this spacewalk done, you know, two weeks from now. And how everybody just understands. And, and I wish I knew the, the answer. Um, I think there's little things that we could talk about that, um, you know, that, that support it. But I think in the end it comes down to all of the thousands of people on the ground and those six crew members on board station understand they're part of something that's so much bigger than any one of us. And, and if I try to apply that in my daily life too, you know, I should do it more with my family, quite honestly, (laughs) because, you know, 
No, we all have our fa- our family kind of easier said than done. It, it absolutely is because how can I live peacefully, successfully for <laughs> three months? I mean, literally, and and know within my crew how how we can deal with each other if one of us wakes up and are, is having a bad day. You know, we we decided in advance how we would deal with that, and we did it, and it was beautiful. And and yet at home, I don't necessarily <laughs> apply those same rules of engagement. And I, I and I I reflect on that like, wow, I really should. I really should do that. Um, and 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 the most important thing to me is my family, and it's why I did the job I did. You know, so my son could have a future where, you know, life is better. Um, and yet, you know, there is still a struggle to. <laughs> to do that sometimes and you know and the and the reason I was able to be successful in um you know in in the job I had was absolutely because I had a supportive family for me you know that was willing to you know to pick up the slack when I wasn't there and I I will be eternally grateful for that and I should show it more (laughs) quite honestly but, I feel like every mom listening yeah. is probably giving you a little bit of a hall pass right now. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that, you know, that was interesting. The, you know, the mom in space thing. And and I definitely was not the first mom in space that has been done. And I'm so thankful to those women for sharing their experiences with me. But um, some, and for some reason, I ended up being the first mom on the space station. And so um, I got that question all the time. You know, everything from the how can you leave your son behind like that and go do this thing in space to um, how how did you, you know, how did you successfully do that? And uh, to me, and, and it is the thing I try to, to still implement in my daily life with, with my son is I wanted him to feel like he was part of my crew. And, and I want him to feel that way now. You know, if, if I enjoy doing something, I want him to know that and I want him to experience it, whether that's flying airplanes or scuba diving. And, and because I think by sharing those things with him, he will discover what he loves. And he might not love the same things, but he'll, through those opportunities, other opportunities will open up for him. So he'll figure out whether he loves scuba diving or not, which he does, and he's the most naturally talented scuba diver I've ever seen in my life. But, you know, I, I look at back what my parents did. They shared what they loved with me, and I figured out what I loved from that. And when I was getting ready to fly in space, and I was traveling over 50% of my time out of the country to train to fly in space, I had to find a way to share that with him. And that was taking him on trips with me. That was introducing him to the people I was working with and showing, getting him out to the really cool training, you know, when we were in the big space suits and doing <laughs> stuff. So he would know, he would know and understand what I was going to be doing and who I was going to be with and why it was important for me to do it and to be away from him on those training trips as well as, you know, for those three months in space. And it was absolutely the most effective thing that I could have done was engage him that way. And, and I, I'm really thankful to NASA too for understanding that as families, you know, every one of us who flies in space, whether we're single with a dog or, you know, a family of five, we have something here that, that we are responsible to and for. And 
Uh, I was so thankful that NASA understood that in a way that allowed me to bring my family to my training with me and introduce them to what I was doing. So, um, that it's a balance and it's the support, you know, from people like my husband and my mom and sisters and my friends that really made it possible for me. I, I know I could not never have done it on my own. How much was communication part of that support? I think it was huge. Um, you know, that was during any of the travel that was going on. It was, you know, just talking to my family just, you know, day to day as uh, as you would when you're down here with them, too. I think that was huge. On the space station, we have really wonderful communication. We I could call home every day, <laughs> you know, multiple times if I wanted to, you know, depending on the time of day. And once a week, we had a video conference, which was really nice. And you know, there's email, and um, though while I was up there in the olden days, there, you know, it wasn't, it was this up and down thing, you know, it wasn't live uh, email, so that wasn't an excellent way to communicate, but it was a way, mm-hmm. and, um, but I think communication in general is really the key, and that's, you know, that's that back and forth calm when you're traveling or you're in space, but it's also the communication of what, just what you're doing. You know, I, I wanted my family to be aware of what and why I was doing these things, you know. And, um, you know, I never would have strapped on to a rocket with 7 million pounds of thrust behind it if I didn't think uh, what I was about to go do and what I'd been doing was going to make life better for my son in, in his future. Um, that that was the really, if I thought about the very you know, basic, do I go or not go? Um, do I do the things I'm doing now or not? It's, it comes down to, you know, will this improve life for him and, you know, others around him? And, Was and that think, really a question for you? Like the, do I go or do I not go? Cause I feel like there's so much training and so much education that has to happen and you have to be committed to before you get that call, right. That says you've been oh, selected. Yeah. Yeah, I think if if you um, apply for this job, uh, you need to know before you even apply that uh, that you have that commitment to it. Which which ultimately is, am I going to strap it onto a rocket <laughs> with you know however many millions of pounds of explosives? Minor detail, feet, right? You know, to to go do this, and um, yeah, I think. But that doesn't mean that you don't consider it as you're getting closer and closer to doing it. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's really, it comes down to the communication thing. Have you as a family discussed this in the way that you as your family need to discuss it? Uh, because I'll tell you, it's a lot more difficult to watch somebody strap onto a rocket and fly into space than it is to be the person strapping into the rocket and flying to space. I mean, it's difficult for me when I watch my friends do it. I so, can't imagine. You know. I like I think about sometimes between the hours of 12:01 and 4:59 a.m. if my husband who works in music is in the city late and driving home late. Yeah. Like during that that really primal time in the evening, I find myself thinking, "Oh god, he's an hour and a half late. The state troopers are going to be here any moment." Aww. So I can't even imagine <laughs> yeah. like watching dear friends and people you've worked and trained and lived with be strapped to a giant hurtling explosive device gone wrong. Well, yeah, I bet it, you, you know, I think the consolation in it is that, you know, even for friends that we've lost doing this, 
we know. I mean, if, if they could speak to us right now, we know that they would be encouraging us more than probably anybody to continue doing these things and to continue doing them because it does, uh, you know, I keep coming back to those three points of, you know, earth, earthling border. Is that what is, that's what it's all about. It's about how do we improve life here on earth for everyone and, and knowing that anybody that does go and strap onto that rocket is, is whether they think of it in those three ways or not, that's what it is coming down to it. Yeah, it's going to be fun once you're up there. It's going to be really cool to float in space and, and work in space. But the, the very basic nature of it is that I think every one of these people is committed to something bigger than they are and to making that work. And yeah, with a seven-year-old son, if it wasn't something like that, I, I wouldn't have strapped myself in. <laughs> you know? And I have to ask a question about fear, because this is something I also hear a lot about in my work. And, you know, the changes my clients are making, you know, sometimes wreak havoc in their personal relationships, or they're changing their diet, or they're having to negotiate something differently in their job. And it's scary things. What kind of role does fear play in the process? Does it exist? Does the training erode it? What helps you manage it? Well, I think there's fear in different ways. So I'll say when, you know, I get asked the question, when you, when you went out to launch the first time, were you afraid? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of launching. I wasn't afraid of strapping in on the rocket. I, I had worked very closely with the people that built it, you know, so that, that I felt like they, they really felt like the care and feeding of those vehicles was their responsibility to make it as safe as they possibly humanly could for me to strap in and fly on it. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not respectful of where I was, that I wasn't aware of the, the risks associated with it, but it wasn't fear. It was more an anxiousness of, okay, what's this going to feel like? I'm finally getting to do this. I have trained so long to do this. We've trained for all the things we, you know, I mean, all of our training is really about when it hits the fan. You know, it's two <laughs> things. It's two things. It's how to work as a team and how to work as a team when it hits the fan. <laughs> and so, you know, I, again, as much as is humanly possible, we've, we've trained to deal with what could go wrong. There are, and we know, things that will go wrong that we have no control over. But the fear for me, the... um the sense of fear for me was more about what my husband, my son, my mom, my sisters were going to be feeling as they watched me do this. That was the fear for me was, you know, please God, give them some peace in this. And then the fear was, and this is maybe a little bit selfish, is when I was on station you know, I knew I was in space in this aluminum hulled vehicle, you know, going around the planet every 90 minutes with debris out there and all this. But again, we had trained for those things that could go wrong and how to work as a team when it hits the fan. <laughs> <laughs> but my fear there was, uh, you know, some, something happening to my son down here on Earth. Something happening to my, you know, husband, my mom, my family, where I knew I was absolutely not going to be able to be there to provide any kind of meaningful support if that did happen. And, and I felt like, uh, you know, a, 
again, maybe from the selfish standpoint, if that happened and I was on space station, how do I deal with that? How do I leverage this relationship with my crew to get through something like that? And the communication that I could have with the ground, but not being able to be there to, to get through that. And that was my fear was it had nothing to do with the, the rocket ship or the, the real, you know, the dangers of my being in space. It was relative to what my family was feeling about it and experiencing or relative to what might happen to my family while I'm away. Yeah, that kind of powerlessness mm-hmm. has to be incredibly mm-hmm. palpable. Yeah. That was it. I, I, I really, and again, you know, it, it's why I'm so thankful for these people that I consider my support system that I knew they would be there. You know, they would be there for my son if something happened to my husband. They would be there for my husband if something happened to my son. Not that that makes it better for me, you know, personally as an individual, but it made it, I don't know, reasonable to think about if um, something did happen. Um. Do you even have time when you are rolling around in the space station to process those kinds of things, right? Like I think about when my clients or friends or even family members have that kind of internal homework to do. You know, there's journaling, there's meditation, there's all sorts of ways that we can go into that space and be with what's going on. But it sounds like your day was like pretty well scheduled that there's not time to like, I'm just going to have a small nervous breakdown in the other room for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of time for that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think it's, 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 a, it, it's about a proactive approach to it. So um, before flying, whether it was with my family or as a crew, um, we had to have those conversations about how we would deal with things coming up. And I'll, I mean, I'll use the crew side of it as an example. I mean, really, I said it before, you know, one of your crew members wakes up, they're not in a good mood. You know, how do you deal with that? Cause you're human beings. It's going to happen. We knew it would happen. So why ignore that? It's going to happen. Let's talk about it before we even get to space. And so we dealt with each other, you know, on the ground and figured out how to deal with each other on the ground so that we would know how to do it in space. And we agreed that we would deal with it, you know, when, when something came up. And, and I also, I have this picture that I show in some of my presentations where, um, because where else in, in space can you do this, is I'm, I'm, I've got my foot through a foot loop, and I'm hanging on by just one foot, and I'm holding all five of my crewmates on my shoulders. <laughs> And it's so cool. It's like, where else can you do this? You know, they're all five. These are five big guys, you know, and I'm holding them all on my shoulders. And it's certainly, you know, from a school education standpoint, it's a really great picture to use for like a mass versus weight uh, lesson. But when I look at it, the human side of it comes out again. It was really fun to do that. Like, oh, look how strong I am holding up these five guys. But what it comes down to, I think, is at some point, and maybe multiple times during that mission, every one of us is going to have to do this. Every one of us is going to have to be willing to carry the load of, of one or more of our crewmates in order for us to end up successful and happy and get through this. And I knew 
that I knew with all five of those guys, I was going to have a good time up there. We were going to have fun. We were going to enjoy the experience. But I also knew when it did hit the fan, they were going to have my back. And I knew if I was having a bad day, they would lift me up on their, they would carry the load for me. And I think that's, you know, that's, it comes down to that in life too, I guess. You know, you've got to be willing to just suck it up and carry the load every now and then and know that those people are going to do the same for you. What was it like being the only woman with a group of guys? Does gender, (laughs) does gender play an issue? You know, I don't think so. And honestly, the only time I really think about that is when I get asked the question is, you know, what was it like to be the only one? Really? I mean, seriously. And I, I, I tried to reflect on it and think back, wow, was there a time where I felt like, you know, being woman, being, being woman, being a woman was a factor in it all. And I don't, I, I, maybe I'm just fortunate. I, I don't know. I never felt like, and I even, I even went back to think about like school and choices I made for what, you know, you know, getting a pilot's license or studying engineering. I never have had that, that feeling. And I definitely didn't have it through, um, through my astronaut training. There were times for sure where I wished I was a little bit stronger, you know, like doing <laughs> the spot training and stuff. Man, I should go to the gym a little bit more or something, you know, because that was very physically challenging. But even in that, I didn't get a sense from other people that it was like, oh, you know, here's this woman coming in here to do this. You know, she's just not going to be able to do it kind of thing. Um, and where I thought I would get it, was, you know, we train at all of our international partner sites. And, uh, you know, before going over to Russia for the first time, I thought, man, if there's going to be any place where they're going to, you know, judge me as, as a woman, it'll be there. And absolutely not. And these were folks that had trained Gagarin, you know, to launch and fly in space. And I never felt like, I was being treated differently because I was a woman. And I didn't get that on my crew either. It was so great, you know. Um, and that's not that I didn't wish that, like, there were more women on the crew. Uh, that it would be, I did actually get to fly on my second flight when I went up. Um, Katie Coleman was on board. So, you know, so we, we were then, we were good friends, and we were there together for two weeks, which was nice. But everybody is just doing the job, you know. Everybody has their family on the ground that they're communicating with that you know and you get to be a part of. And, uh, and everybody is just expecting the other person to do their best. And I, I really don't think, um, at least I never felt like that was a real consideration, you know, that, oh, I'm the only woman on a crew. Another uh, massive lesson learned yeah. in space, that that is possible. Yeah. And it's huge. I really do try to, you know, because I, I go and speak at, at schools and things. And now I will say, though, what what I have seen, uh, and I have, my, my son is almost 16 now, and I've watched him and his, you know, male counterparts um, through school and stuff. And um, while I think, you know, it shouldn't matter, you know, the rocket ship doesn't care if you're a boy or girl, that, you know. This computer doesn't care if we're boys or girls. You know, we, we're just doing the job. And, but I think young girls absolutely need to see female role models. 
I, maybe that's just a little bit different in our wiring. I don't know. But for us to have the confidence to do things that seem impossible, I think we need, we need to be out there. We need to be the examples. We need to be present for um, young girls. Because I, I have seen young boys, it, you know, you go into career day, and they really generally just don't care if it's a man or woman up there talking to them or showing them about something that's cool and exciting or possible for them to do. But young girls, I think, need to see women present and as examples for them. So true. And that's something I keep in the back of my mind when I'm reaching out to guests for this show. I think a lot of times I'm probably talking to adult women who are sometimes in transition in their careers and thinking Mm -hmm. about like, what can I do as a next phase? And also moms and moms Mm -hmm. with daughters who need to be reminded of all of these things that they can mention or share. Like I listened to a podcast where Kara spoke to an astronaut or, you know, I was really struck when I spoke to Patty Wilson, who works as an air traffic controller and is the president of of professional woman (laughs) controllers, because I thought there's another woman who can talk about stress and and coping. And it was, you know, it was fascinating in that conversation to learn how hard the women in that industry are working to get more girls to become air traffic controllers. They're like, we're well paid. We're gainfully employed. Job security is a non-starter for us. And yet, I think they're only 16% of their workforce. And, you know, she was sharing a lot of the same stuff. Like, we, like girls need to see this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's, um, it's interesting because I think it's, even in places where women are, you know, have significant numbers in the, I think young girls still need to see examples of it. And, and it's funny because, you know, people will ask about like the NASA and the astronaut thing, like, oh, well, why aren't there more women doing this? And I, I tell them, I'm like, look, if you take the time to look at the overall NASA population, it, just pick engineers as an example. You know, I can tell you, go back and look at when we first launched like Apollo rockets and stuff. There was one woman <laughs> in the control center. One, you can see her. She's kind of smack dab in the middle of the um, of the crowd in the control center. And it's, it's like this, you know, so obvious. Now you look at mission control for the space station, you're, you don't even notice man or woman. It's just this blend of, of humanity there. And, and NASA has overall been really pretty progressive in this. And the astronaut office, there's like 40-something active NASA astronauts. And I would say we're approaching at least 25%, if not close to 30%, are women now. That's huge. That's a growth curve. That is huge. <laughs> you do not, you, we are still struggling to get female enrollment in engineering colleges. That doesn't, you know, if if, a, in, if an engineering school has twenty percent female enrollment in engineering, that is huge. It's 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 ginormous, and you know, to get to the the next five percent, it's like it it almost seems unattainable. It's like, what do we have to do to, you know, to get women excited about these kinds of things? And and I think a a, a key in it is for the women that are doing it or that have done it to just be there to be present and share in their experience. 
And, and it's why I love what my parents did for me. You know, whether it was my dad sharing that he loved flying or my mom sharing, you know, the creative things that she did with me. I, it, it opened up opportunities for me that I don't think I would have had otherwise, just because I had the thought in my mind that these kinds of things were possible. And, Nicole, and nobody ever told me I couldn't do it. <laughs> oh, important. So yeah. important to hear. Nicole, I'm so glad that you're sharing from your journey and not just here in Le Vital Core Salon, but you're out in the world talking about this a lot and sharing your art. What is phase two of your career, right? It's funny to think. I mean, you're essentially retired at this point, right? Yeah, it's not. Doesn't ever feel very retiring, but yeah, it's yeah. So I retired from NASA, yes, and uh, and that was a difficult decision to make. I have to tell you, you know, um, was still in line to fly in space again. Um, I probably would be in space right now if I had stayed in the astronaut office. But I was really starting to feel like, wow, you know, how do I, how do I really share this experience in the most meaningful way? You know, it, it was a very special thing to get to do. I mean, I, I acknowledge that I am blessed to have had that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I pinch myself every day. What, what stood out about me <laughs> that had them, you know, that they chose me to do this kind of thing. But I, I really was starting, you know, that kind of churny feeling you get sometime about, you know, what is it should I really be doing? And I started to recognize that the spaceflight experience was really, you know, as powerful and, and, uh, and for me as impactful as it was, I needed to share it in a new way. And I needed to answer the question, do I need to fly in space again? And if I did that honestly, the answer was no. <laughs> so, so how do I, how do I, how do I share it? And I just kept coming back to the opportunity I had to paint in space. You know, what we, what we started our conversation out with and discovered that that could be a really unique way to share the experience with audiences that don't even, or may not even know we have six people living in space. And that we've been doing that as an, an international community peacefully, successfully for the last 20 years. And as long as my son has been alive, we've had people living off this planet. And all, all for the greater good of what, you know, an improving life here on Earth. And art, I mean, my gosh, I just think of art as this universal communicator. And for me, it was a way to, to get out there, to... Um, to tell people about what I had experienced, but to encourage them to know what we're doing in space that's all about improving life here on Earth and to really encourage that Earthling and Earth appreciation that we talked about. I imagine it's easy to discount art. And something I know that's really important to you is the difference between STEM versus STEAM. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'm a total fan of the STEM thing, but I, I also think that it should not be, it shouldn't be at the expense of the arts, of the social sciences, of the psychology, of the how we live as human beings kind of thing too. And, and I really believe that, and I try to do this with, with my son and I try to watch for it in his schools is 
we need our children to be creative problem solvers. And for them to do that, yeah, they have to get this technical, you know, science, technology, engineering, math, you know, they need to have that. But they also need to be able to creatively assess something, to apply different, you know, ways of thinking about things for the most meaningful solution. And I want my son to be a problem solver in everything that he does. And, and you know, the art, the cultural side of things, the relationships we have with, you know, I can use the station again, you know, the relationships we have with our international partners, that's not science. It's, it, it may be, unless it's a social science, social science, you know, how we live as human beings together. And, um, and art is just, it's, it's one of those parts of being a human being. And, and I really think, um, you know, when we look more closely at it, most people have a blend going on. And, and you know, some of us may not acknowledge it. I don't know. I don't know, but I think if for the most part as humans, we have this kind of natural blend of the art and the science happening with us, or the art and the technical. And, uh, and that's the way we're most successful is to, you know, is to use that blend. Yes. And it's, to be a good problem solver, you need to be able to look at data and measure things and stuff like that. But there is a piece of problem solving that's, creative or outside of that data like for example like a lot of times here's one instance with a client snacking was an issue and I'm all about trying to collect conventional or unconventional data so the homework for the couple weeks between sessions was write down when you're snacking like the time of day and what you're snacking on and what you're feeling in that moment Like, it doesn't have to be these big, long entries, but just jot it down. Yeah. And then, of course, when we got to the next session, you know, we're looking at that. We're looking at it together and, like, do we see any trends? Well, it's in the evenings. Okay, well, what's happening in the evenings? And as we unpacked it more and more, and, you know, I'm fast-forwarding this story, but 45 minutes later, it was, I snack when my husband's in the room because we don't have anything to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, that was the thing. It didn't have to anything to do with the calories in or calories out or what what it was, the quantities or, you know, it was this other piece. But we had to be creative and keep thinking about like, well, what could this be? What could be and be curious and be open. And I think that's something that art can really draw out in us. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like you say the word curious. I mean, what is science all about? It's all about <laughs> curiosity. You know, it's wanting to know and discover. And, and you know, I'll use an example. It's like we have been, you know, take Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, he's probably the best example. But, you know, this, this intersection between art and science, it shouldn't be this like flames will happen when you bring the two together. You know, it's <laughs> They they belong together. I mean, I, I won't go down this path, but it's the same thing to me when you think about like science and religion. There shouldn't be conflict there. But, you know, the art and science, use Hubble t- Space Telescope as an example. Hubble Space Telescope has brought back some of the most stunning imagery of our universe that we've ever seen before. And, you know, I think we tend to look at it from a public standpoint, like, oh, look at that beautiful picture of that galaxy or that star or whatever it is. 
you know, from an artistic sense. But the scientists are doing the exact same thing. There's all these ones and zeros coming back. And even their brains don't wrap around the ones and zeros as well as they do of making a picture out of the ones and zeros and saying all of this kind of gas is going to be pink and this kind of gas is going to be blue. And I'll get this really you know, wonderful image out of it that tells me what kind of gases are, that star is made up of. But it just happens to be really beautiful, too. And their brain processes it better by looking at the picture than the ones and zeros. It's just embedded in how I think human beings manage data. You know, we need the picture. (laughs) So is this how the Space for Art Foundation came to be? Yeah, I think the Space for Art, the Space for Art Foundation grew out of a couple things. One was, um, I curated an exhibit about, it's probably about two years ago now, in Houston at the Visitor Center, Space Center Houston. They had this huge, big, round gallery in the center and was offered that gallery to use. And what it did was it brought together these people that I'd worked with over time. I just, for some reason, kept this list of all these people that you would normally just think of as the scientist, engineer, astronaut, you know, that you would think of them in their technical world and had discovered that they had some kind of artistic thing going on too. And so I invited them from the Johnson Space Center community to participate in this exhibit where we would display their artwork and they would give me a two to three sentence blurb on how science and art have come together and positively impacted their lives. It was the coolest display. I mean, we had everything from handcrafted wooden longboard skateboards that looked like sculptures to stained glass to paintings and sculptural cakes and quilts and musical instruments. I mean, all of these things. And it was so cool to see how it came together and how the public responded to it. I mean, I remember standing by these kids talking about, well, you can't do science and art. And, you know, being like, this is so cool. You can do science and art, you know, and having them get that reality check. But also these people that had some of them had worked together for like 20, 25 years and had no clue that the other one had this artistic thing going on. And so it's like they were reintroduced to each other through this exhibit. And I really think that they do better work together now because they know that and that they, you know, that they, they both share this, you know, science and art blend. Um, so that was, that was kind of a starting point for it. But also, um, and maybe more importantly, is um, the Spacesuit Art Project, which was something, you know, when you talk about what am I doing now as a result of the space flight experience, I think I had that spaceflight experience so I could support things like the Space for Art or Spacesuit Art Project. And it was where I got invited to participate in this project where um, an artist at a hospital wanted to do something related to space. And he had started this art and medicine program there with the kids that were in pediatric cancer, the cancer center there. And he always did something where he took the kids' individual art pieces and did some larger format art piece out of it to share some message and so we came up with the spacesuit idea and we took these kids individual artwork and 
our our spacesuit company, ILC Dover, that builds our real spacesuits, volunteered to quilt these this artwork together into spacesuits. And so these kids' art came together in a way that just like all of these countries coming together on the space station to do something bigger than themselves and communicate something bigger than themselves, these kids' artwork came together that way in these spacesuits. And it has been such a powerful thing for me to see how these children who are going through what we hope is the most traumatic you know, thing in their entire lives are affected, I mean, very positively affected. It is kind of a transcendence thing, I think, for them when they're painting and thinking about their artwork going into the spacesuit that might or might not go to space. But it allows them to talk about the experience they're having in the hospital and relate it to something like being an astronaut and thinking about their future and what they might do, you know, to make life better for, you know, everyone around them. And um, so we've taken that. We've taken the exhibit kind of idea, this blend of science and art. We've taken, you know, space-themed projects um, that tie the, this kind of power of art and healing together and we're trying to build on that to spread it, you know, more and more around the world to encourage art and medicine programs and, you know, and hospitals that might not have used that kind of therapy before. And also to look at the kind of research we can do as a result of it. Nicole, I have... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Nicole, I have no doubt with your creativity and your ability to really connect people. I mean, just all the benevolent stalking I did to get ready for this interview. <laughs> you seem like a pretty well-loved person among even your colleagues. You know, which I think, you know, I think about old jobs. No one's like, I have the most amazing colleagues. Yet I found quotes from your, your colleagues that are like, Nicole's who I'd want on my team. Nicole's Aww. who I'd want. Where'd you find that? <laughs> I'll send you the link. I think yeah, I probably bookmarked it somewhere. But I think there is no doubt we're going to see some amazing stuff happening and more creative ideas from you. And I believe people can follow the Space for Art Foundation on Facebook, so I'll make sure that's in the show notes. But I know we're pressed for time. And this conversation has literally gone to outer space and back. <laughs> we have bounced all over the place like Adam's. What do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today? Oh, well, I think I think it comes back to those three points of, you know, we live on a planet, we're all earthlings, and, you know, the only border that matters is that thin blue line of the atmosphere that blankets us all. And I know it sounds kind of rote now, kind of like a, a speech, but I think they're simple things that we all should be considering in our day-to-day -day lives. It's, it's at the foundation of what we're doing with Space for Art. You know, that spacesuit art project, it's about connecting kids and, and helping them realize that they're all on this same planet together and that they have the power to, to reach out to each other, to work together and, you know, and to make life better here on Earth for everyone. Um, I, I think that's really it. You know, leave here an Earthling crew of Spaceship Earth. Well, Earthlings, Nicole <laughs> and I are signing off. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much for your energy, your impact, your wisdom, and your example. We really That's, need this. Oh, well, I appreciate the invitation to speak with you, Kara. I really enjoyed the conversation, and 
Um, but I hope we talk again. Me too. Thank you. Hey, this is Kara again. Thank you for sticking around till the end. I hope you dug this conversation with Nicole as much as I did. If you found yourself wanting to Google some of the things Nicole and I were talking about, chances are there are already links to all of those things that live in the show notes, and you can find them over at levitalcoursalon.com. That's L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N.com. Creating a podcast like The Vital Course Salon takes a lot of resources to produce and still make it free for all of you. One powerful way you can support this podcast and help me continue to amplify some amazing work by some amazing women is by sharing this episode with one woman that you know. If you want to double down, the next best way to help is to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you prefer listening to podcasts. Thank you for listening and thank you for sharing. Thank you to my husband and producer Craig Snyder for his editing magic and serendipitously choosing to sit right behind astronaut Leland Melvin. Thank you to Leland Melvin for introducing Craig to Nicole Stodd so that this podcast would come together. Quick side note, folks. Leland Melvin has a book called Chasing Space. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, grab yourself a copy. Thank you to my virtual assistant, Darlene Victoria, who helps me keep all the nuts and bolts of the podcast together behind the scenes. And thank you to Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the really terrific theme music that they let me run with. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let the BS or burnout stop you.